Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Who doesn't remember their first trip to the county fair? The greasy hot dogs and popcorn and cotton candy, the lights and sounds of the seemingly endless games and rides and shows on the midway, but maybe most of all the sense of wonder, inspired by real people who could contort their bodies into incredible shapes with ease and show off amazing feats of agility and strength you never thought possible. Feats that made you think, how on earth did they do that? The trick, it turns out, is that there is no trick. Most of what you see, you can believe. This is the first of many sideshow axioms writer Tessa Fontaine learned when she left the life she knew to join the circus in 2013. Now, in her debut book of nonfiction, The Electric Woman, a memoir in death-defying acts, Fontaine's keen descriptive powers offer a revealing glimpse into the secret world of the United States' last traditional traveling sideshow. On the road, Fontaine met all kinds of personalities, from carnies to show people, who taught her about wonder, and how to inspire it through her performances as a fire breather, a sword swallower, a snake charmer, and so much more. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we sit down with Tessa Fontaine to hear more about the electric woman and her incredible journey traveling with the World of Wonders sideshow. Tessa, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, So we're here to discuss your debut memoir, uh, The Electric Woman, a memoir in Death-Defying Acts. The first braid uh, details 150 days that you spent as a sideshow performer in the world of wonders. And um, so I'm curious, first and foremost, uh, about the definitions of things. So what comprises a sideshow and how does the word sideshow differ or intersect with words like carnival or circus? Yeah, sure. Um, so a sideshow is a term um, that comes from the 19th century, and it was a show that was literally on the side of a circus. So um, when circuses were sort of touring around, they would often have a side tent that was attached to the main stage, main, main tent. Um, and then in the side tent, there was often um some other kinds of acts. Uh, oftentimes it kind of became a place where some of the um, maybe less family-friendly acts sometimes took place, some of the girl shows. Um, sometimes it's where some of the musical acts took place. Um, it, it, it kind of was just a separate show. Uh, and, and then eventually in the 20th century, the sideshow um, split from the circus. And um, so a lot of sideshows were kind of touring on their own. Um, sideshows are fairly synonymous with freak shows, um, although uh, the word freak came to be kind of politically controversial. So some people in the community really embrace it now, um, although kind of in the larger political correctness, people are uncomfortable with it. But a lot of the performance um, self-identify as freaks. Um, and then in terms of carnival, a carnival is like the larger, um, 
tour, the larger touring, it's the whole shebang. So it's like all of the rides, uh, mostly all of the rides. And oftentimes they also have a lot of um, food joints that are with them. They'll have a lot of game joint, a lot of games. Um, So it's kind of like the bigger expanse. And so if a fair, like let's say the Minnesota State Fair is, is looking to hire stuff to come in, they'll often hire a carnival company, which will be a company that has all of the rides and the food and the games. And then they'll hire some independent contractors. Um, and that's what we were as a sideshow. We were an independent sideshow contractor. So they would hire us kind of individually as a big act that would usually go on one of the um, ends of the midway, which is the, the area that you walk around where all of the rides are. And so we would sort of be at one of the ends and we'd have a huge circus tent um, and we would have our show there. So in The Electric Woman, you mentioned that uh, the term carny, um, which people sort of use as a blanket term for um, sideshow performers, as well as those who operate the rides and people involved in the carnival or the fair. Um, but you mentioned that that's sort of a derogatory term. Yeah, it's, um, well, it's it's a term that is just, it's really specific. So a carny technically is anyone who works in the carnival uh, in any capacity, but, um, Carnies are, it kind of similarly is that the, the word is sort of like, um, taken with a, with a bit of pride for a lot of the folks that are kind of old, old timers who have been with the show for a long time, um, or excuse me, with the carnival company for a long time. But we were in a category of people who like to define themselves a little bit differently. And that was as show people. So show people who are the actual performers, um, are, are sort of a separate, they, they, they separate themselves a little bit from carnies. And um, there's a little bit, I I think a little bit of like, kind of class issue that goes along with that. um, And a little bit of just some of the negative, negative um, stereotypes that go with carnies that show people don't necessarily want to associate with them. Although really, at the end of the day, everyone is living inside the carnival fairgrounds, everyone is living in trucks, everyone is sort of participating in the same kind of life. So then what drew you to um, the world of wonders? And what interested you about becoming a show person? Yeah, I, um, I had always had a real interest in uh, sideshows and freak shows and kind of history of um, people who were performing either feats of, of great wonder um, or were displaying themselves um, sort of with uh, through, through a presentation of non-normativity. So basically coming on stage and saying, making a a pronunciation of I am different and you should look at me. I thought that was just a really interesting idea. And it's something that um, we kind of see in a lot of uh, capacities like on TV and in advertisements and stuff. But the the sideshow is a place where it happens just so specifically and intentionally. So I had just always been really interested in it. And um, I was doing a, a master's degree in Alabama and learned that there was this one town in Florida where sideshow performers went to retire. Um, and it was a town that uh, where, where carnies also wintered and that had first actually been established by a group of uh, sideshow performers who were on their way down to Sarasota, which is where Ringling, Ringling's winter headquarters are. And they found this little area um, that 
uh, is outside of Tampa, and it just uh, seemed really peaceful. It was kind of away from the hustle of, of most of the circus stuff that went on in the winter. And so a bunch of sideshow performers established it as a town. Um, and I heard there was this place, and so I just kind of drove down there out of curiosity to try to figure out what was going on. And I got in touch with a few people that were in town there and associated with um, – associated with the showman's club that was there and started just poking around. And, and I thought maybe I was going to write an article about it. Um, and, and once I was down there, I learned that there was this one remaining traveling sideshow in the United States. There's only one traditional traveling sideshow left and it's the world of wonders. Um, and, and I was, I was just so intrigued. Uh, I should say here that I had absolutely no skills at all. Like I couldn't do anything related to circus performing or sideshow performing. I can't even do a cartwheel. Like this was just not in any way a dream of mine because I had skills. Um, I was just really, really interested in it. Uh, so I went down there and just was asking them a lot of questions, people in the show and the owners and, um, some of the old timers who had been involved in Sideshow for a long time. And uh, I think I just asked them enough questions that I sort of like annoyed them to the point where the, this, the Chris Christ, who is one of the show's owners at the time said like, look, if you really want to understand what this world is like, um, why don't you come play with us for a season? Uh, and, and playing a season is the same as joining up for a season. And so um, I, I didn't feel like I could say no. Uh, and so I said yes and um, hoped that he hadn't told the road boss, who would actually be my boss for the season, that I didn't, in fact, have any skills. Um, although that, that boss would learn that fairly quickly into the season. So then without any skills... Um, at least at first, what kind of acts were you initially responsible for and which acts did you learn as you went? I was initially hired as a ballet girl, um, which is the person who stands on stage next to the ballet talker. Uh, ballet talker is what people who are actually with the show call like what we would think of as a barker, like a carnival barker. So it's the person who stands on the on the front stage out in the middle of the midway and they're the one who are sort of like talking up the acts inside, putting on little free shows, getting people to come buy a ticket to come to the big show inside. And so my job would be to stand next to that person and perform a variety of little little acts and stunts that would kind of, you know, allure people into thinking that more greatness would be inside. And so there are four acts that a ballet girl needs to perform. Uh, that's fire eating, snake charming, um, escape from handcuffs, and a magic trick. Uh, and I couldn't do any of those things. But uh, the boss believed, and I didn't really know this at the time, but um, that those acts are all so easy to learn that um, within one day of, of performing them, you kind of, you, you get them down enough to that you can do them just fine. And it's such a different concept than... Um, like I had, I had been a performer, I'd been an actor uh, for years. And, and in that kind of a performance, you know, you have rehearsed for months usually before your opening performance, you know, you know, your acts so well, but here in the sideshow, uh, and I should say that's, that's partly because you're only performing the play say once a day, maybe twice, but usually once um, in the sideshow, you're going to perform the same acts between 20 and 50 times per day, each act that you do. So even if you learn the act in the morning by 
lunch, you will have done that thing you know, 20 times. So uh, it doesn't really matter if you're bad when you start out doing it, even if you're performing in front of people, because by the time, you know, half of the day goes by, you're going to know how to do that act really well. So it couldn't do anything. It turns out it didn't really matter because uh, you learn so quickly out there that as long as you're not afraid of trying to do it, um, you sort of just, you just do it. So, uh, so I, I learned how to do basically everything out there on the road. Um, and that was, um, snake charming and escaping from handcuffs and the magic trick. Uh, before I left, I decided that I, that I should learn how to do one thing. Cause I had sort of fibbed and said that I could do a lot of things, which was not true, but I wanted them to hire me. Um, so I, I decided to take a introduction to fire eating class um, at a fire arts collective in Oakland, California, um, and that was basically like a two day quick, um, quick class on how to eat fire. And uh, much to my surprise, um, it it went right into my mouth for some reason. Whatever the fear. Uh, impulses that should have maybe kept me from, um, putting fire on my face, like vacated. And so I just, um, ate the fire right away and, and got to the show and was, and, and was able to eat fire, uh, and then through the course of the season, I eventually also became an inside performer. And there I learned how to, um, how to become an electric woman, which is where you're sitting on an electric chair and you're lighting lights off of your arms and legs and in your mouth. Um, and I learned how to be a talker for a lot of acts. So I got the microphone and I would sort of be uh, the equivalent of the, of the ballet talker while um, the contortion act was going on, while the bed of nails act was going on. Um, I also learned how to swallow swords and throw knives and... Um, and I, I learned every act in the show. We all had to be able to do uh, every single act um, in case anything happened to anyone. You would have to be able to fill in any act at any point. So, uh, yeah, I learned a lot, a lot of skills that are not actually as easily transferable as one one might hope uh, <laughs> while I was there. Um, so then of everything that you learned, um, what did you find the most difficult or dangerous? The most difficult... I think the thing that it, that took me the longest to actually get over was probably snake charming. Um, I, I hadn't really been around snakes before and I felt afraid of them. Uh, but, but I kind of had this idea that like once I was around them, it would be fine. Um, but it turns out it wasn't fine. I was deeply, deeply afraid of them, uh, which I didn't really realize until you know, it, we got the snakes to the show the night before we were set to open and the boss like pulls out these two giant red tail boa constrictors and sets one around my neck because it's my job starting the next morning to wear this snake full time on stage. Um, and I just about lost it. I mean, I, I was just shaking and crying and sweating and trying to like, you know, press myself like up against the truck enough to disappear through the wall. And it took me a long time to, uh, to kind of calm down about the snakes. And in fact, the first few days that I actually had the snake on me when we were performing, I had to wear sunglasses on stage, uh, because I was just crying. I was just like involuntarily tearing up the whole time. They're just, my tears are running down my, my cheeks. And so I had to just wear sunglasses and, and smile and pretend like I was just sweating or something while, while the snake was on me. So that, that was really hard, um, to, to sort of calm down my, my 
uh, nerves. Um, None of the other, I mean, sword swallowing, I never got very good at sword swallowing. Um, That's an act that requires an incredible amount of uh, just repetition. You have to, um, you have to suppress three, uh, three sphincters like in your throat um, in order to get the sword all the way down. And so it just takes doing it over and over and over and over again. And um, I never got very good at that one, but a lot of the other acts, um, they aren't so much uh, hard to do as they are. Um, You just have to like suppress the instinct that is telling you to be fearful of the thing that you're doing. So like eating fire and like sitting on the electric chair, um, they can be uncomfortable sometimes, but the biggest hurdle is your fear of uh, your natural, (laughs) very normal fear of, of the thing. Um, And so, so yeah, you just sort of have to, to choose to not be afraid or to be afraid really. And and just to do the thing anyway. I think a lot of people, when they hear, the word sideshow, they sort of think like, oh, there's a trick involved, you know, like it's an illusion. They're not really performing these acts, but really there is no trick, right? Right, right. Uh, I mean, there there are, I was shocked really um, to learn that because even doing, you know, research before I went out there and, and um, kind of knowing a little bit about the sideshow, I thought for sure that there would be something else involved in swallowing swords or eating fire or throwing knives. Like you have a live person standing on a knife board and someone else throwing knives at them. Like certainly that can't really be happening. Uh, But those things are all really happening. Like when excuse me, when our performer is, is nailing huge steel nails up his nose, he's really doing that. And, and when he takes this giant corsage pin and weaves it through his skin, he's actually doing that. Um, and it's kind of incredible that now we have so, we see so many special effects and we see so many, you know, forms of trickery and stuff that it doesn't seem like it's possible. It seems like there must be some elaborate scheme taking place. Uh, but I, it was really funny to me to understand that actually like the show never had enough like money or pizzazz for any kind of trick. Like we were just, just getting by with, with whatever, whatever we had. Um, so no, there are no tricks. You're really doing the thing that it looks like you're doing, um, which, which is totally shocking. Now I should say we also had a couple illusions and, um, these are things that I feel very comfortable saying uh, were not real. And, and that was, um, we had a, uh, a, a four, I was, I should say, I was a four-legged woman. I was also a no-headed woman who is still alive and moving around. We had a, 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 a woman's head and a spider body. And those are illusions um, where there's like a set, a set piece built. And, and it's called, you're called a box jumper if you're in these illusions and you basically put your body into the set piece into the contraption and through a set of mirrors, um, you know, you come to look like you have four legs or no head or uh, a spider body. But those, um, those were, those are kind of more traditional sideshow acts too, and, and are a very different class than, than the, um, the torture arts, which, which are the, the painful things that, yeah, you're really just doing them. So with that in mind, can you tell us a little bit about the acronym GTFM? <laughs> yes, yes, I can. So GTFM stands for um, get the fucking money. Um, 
And that is uh, that is something that folks say uh, as as sort of a bottom line. And that is um, in order to you know have the sideshow survive, have the business survive, you get the money from the people who are there at the fair. Um, and there's this really interesting thing that uh, Ward Hall, who is one of the who he's called the king of the sideshow. He's been in the business for years and years. He was the co-owner of the World of Wonders when I was with the show, um, and he has this really great thing that he says about show business, which, you know, like the, the king of the sideshow guy who has been doing it forever. You think like, God, he must just really love the show part. And like he wears, I mean, like literal sequin jackets and top hats. He's just like, you know, total glamour. Um, but what he says about the sideshow or excuse me about show business is that business is the bigger part of the word than show. And, and that, that idea holds true for the sideshow that, um, it's very much about razzle dazzle and it's very much about, you know, the performance, but ultimately it's a business. It is, it is a way that people are getting by out there. They are getting the money from the tickets. They are, there are extra dings inside the show, which are like extra little money makers. Um, and that means like, for example, I would talk this contortion act, you would see a woman go into a box, you would see us put 30 swords through the box. Um, so you would know that she's contorted inside. And for one extra tiny dollar, you could go around and see her inside the box yourself. So we had a few things like that were that were extra little money makers in the show. And, um, and there was there was no apology for it. There was no sense of like, Oh, you've already paid your $3. I'm sorry that you need to pay one more to see this. Because it's like, no, man, and get the fucking money, like get the money. That is the more important piece. Um, people are going to come and go, you know, sometimes we'd have thousands of people through the show in a single day. And you're just trying to get enough money to like keep the show going to be a business. Um, it's, it's incredibly sort of like a capitalistic, uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a business and, and they're going to keep going. And, um, one of our performers had GTFM tattooed on the, on her finger, which I always thought was hilarious. Um, just as a reminder, like that, no matter what we're going to, we're going to make this business work. I was really blown away in reading the book about how detailed um, all of your descriptions are about the, not only the performances, but also the atmosphere of the carnival and fairs that you would go to um, and the other performers and the great conversations that you would have with them. And I felt like you did such an excellent job portraying each person as a fully fleshed character on the page. And so I was just curious, um, as a writer, did you keep a journal or take notes of some kind? And how did that work while you were on the road? Because it was pretty hectic, it seemed. Yeah, it was really, really hectic. We worked crazy hours. Um, but yeah, thank you for saying that. Uh, uh, I took a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of notes while I was out there. Um, and, and I did it in a couple of different ways. Um, I had a little like Chromebook with me. And so, um, if I was ever like at the end of the day, or if there was ever a tiny break in the day, um, I would, I would try to just take notes on anything that I could remember, everything that was happening that day. What a funny little tidbit that someone said was, um, where we were, what some of the other, um, attractions were that were around us, just anything I could think of. I tried to just record everything I could, uh, down. Um, I also had my phone with me, um, backstage. And so I would, I had, you know, just my notes app open and all the time. And so I would just kind of jot things down that, that people had said, or that, that were going on. So, um, 
I felt like ethically for me as a writer, if I was going to write about real other people, um, I needed to do so as truthfully as possible and um, with as much detail as possible and also to to do exactly what you said, to try to really portray them as um, fully rounded people. I mean, not just because, um, not just because, you know, like they, they are real people, which of course, which of course they are, but also because like, that's actually, I think the only way to be really fair to someone you're writing about, like, even if there was someone that maybe I personally liked a little bit less or a little bit more, um, in order to understand them contextually in terms of my relationship with them and in terms of their relationships with the other performers and with the show and everything, it felt really necessary to kind of put them in the whole context of, you know, here are some things that they did that were wonderful. Here are some things that they did that were not so great. Um, here's some stuff about their life. Here's what they were like in the show. And, and it just felt like the most, uh, kind of truthful and authentic way. And, and for me, just morally, like what was necessary in, in writing about other people. Um, someone said, I, I wish I remember who this was, but when you are writing personal nonfiction, um, you have to be willing to throw yourself further under the bus than you throw anyone else. And uh, I liked that idea. I held on to that idea for this book um, that uh, if I was going to, you know, disclose some information about another performer or really someone in my family that um, that wasn't just like wasn't totally flattering, I had to be willing to also investigate my own um, culpability in that and, and why I thought that way and maybe what I had done, you know, in my own life that was less savory to kind of get to that moment. Um, and, you know, it helped a lot for the writing of the book. And it also, I think, actually kind of made me a more compassionate person in general, honestly, because uh, I had to, if there was a moment that I remembered someone, you know, saying something that I thought was, you know, kind of rude or, or um, mean or something, uh, I was forced to think about that in a much broader context, which like took it away from maybe like whatever petty feelings I was feeling into, into a larger, larger sort of story about them. And, uh, yeah, I think it was really helpful. So speaking of the um, other show people that you worked with, um, so how did your, I guess, understanding about who the people who choose to work sideshows are compared to um, when you first became interested and were just researching this culture? Um, what surprised you or... Um, sort of challenged that original notion that you had when you actually were spending day in, day out uh, performing alongside them? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a good question. And um, and I think the, the biggest surprise to me was just uh, what a huge variety there was in the kinds of people who choose this as their life. Um, you know, we had some we had, we just had, we had a, a huge range, um, of, you know, people, some people who, uh, couldn't really work, um, you know, a more like quote unquote traditional job or, or, um, more traditional hours or something, um, because of a variety of maybe mental health issues or past traumas or, um, legal issues. Like, uh, there were just, I don't know, a lot of maybe blockades in their life to other kinds of jobs. And, and this kind of job offered a space for those people to work. 
We also had people who were, you know, highly college educated and and had probably a lot of possibilities that they could have done in their life and were choosing this because they really, really believed in the tradition of the sideshow and in kind of preserving this um, American spectacle. Um, We had people who just loved performing so much, they couldn't imagine any other kind of lifestyle. Um, We had people who just loved sort of the idea of traveling all the time and being transient and and seeing, you know, the United States through the lens of its um, fairgrounds. And so there was just a real, real variety of of the kinds of people that um, were choosing to be performers and, and choosing to kind of live their life on the road like this. And that was really exciting to me. It was really, really cool to, um, you know, have, you know, get, get to know them, but also to have to figure out for all of us how to live together in, like we lived in the back in the trailer of a semi truck, all of us together. Uh, we didn't have rooms with doors. We did. I mean, we were just all together. And so uh, that's hard to do with, anyone like it would be hard to do with your you know people that you love very much already and so it was certainly hard to do with a group of of strangers uh, especially a group of performing strangers many of whom have pretty strong personalities um but but it made it i think so much more interesting to to have to become like you know i kind of hate the cliche of like have to become a family but but you we did in the way that like we didn't always love each other like like sometimes we didn't like each other much at all sometimes we you know there'd be mornings where we would wake up and everyone would be so tired and so grumpy and so just no one would speak to each other for hours and the only words that would be exchanged were on stage, you know, in the middle of an act, and then you would come off stage, and it would just be silent again. And so that's a really, a really funny kind of life, I guess, from the outside to be living, but, um, but, but, but really, like, uh, an incredible testament to, to the folks who chose to, to stick it out for the season and and stay out on the road and, um, and kind of honor this, this, old form of performance that that really believes in in the wonder of the inexplicable um and so that was really great i, I really learned a lot from the folks out there and um and have a lot of love and admiration for them you said that the world of wonders is the last traveling sideshow um and so i'm curious yeah what what do you think the future holds think- for traveling sideshows as a whole what does the future hold for sideshows as a whole? Did you say? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, actually. So so I was out with them um, for the 2013 season. Um, and since then, actually, the World of Wonders has undergone some changes. Um, Tommy, who was the road boss when I was out on the road with them, actually purchased the show. Um, and he has made some changes. And he is, he is so great. And I think he has been asking himself that that very question for a number of years now, because um, as as amazing as it was to be part of the last traditional traveling sideshow, uh, it was also not exactly sustainable the way that we were operating. Um, I mean, we were often like on the brink of, of shutting down permanently. Like we were always, you know, using old tires on our semi truck. They kept popping in the road. Um, some people would, you know, not be paid. It was sometimes you would have to use like real gasoline from the gas station to eat fire and not the white camping gas. So it was, it was a struggle financially. And, um, what Tommy's made some changes to, 
uh, sort of switch it away from a traditional show. And and so, for example, in a traditional sideshow, you perform a grind show, which means that um, you're performing the same show over and over again, act to act, back to back, from when the carnival opens until when the carnival closes. So maybe from 10 a.m. to midnight. So it's an incredibly long day, and you're performing the entire time. Um and it's it's really really easy for the performers to get burnt out uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and Tommy's kind of changed it now to the the show will be at carnivals and they'll only perform um, two times a day. And so uh, and they have a smaller cast. And so he is I think doing what kind of the same thing actually that the American Circus is doing right now, which is still you know holding on to some pieces of what what makes the circus the circus or the sideshow the sideshow, but also adapting it uh, for more contemporary, um, you know, both audiences and also for the performers to be able to sustain that kind of life. So I think that people um, will always be interested in, in wonder and in danger. And, and um, I think that the, the people who are still really true to the form are doing their best to adapt. Um, I mean, there's also this, this culture of bar shows now, and that's like um, adult, performances where um, they'll, they'll yeah, usually be in bars. And so the performers will be performing just once a day and they're more extreme acts. It's more like um, pulling razor, razor blades out of your mouth and, and doing some of the gorier acts that are, you know, not the family friendly kind of show that we had. Um, so, so I think there are kind of spinoffs and, and um, I think things will probably continue kind of going in that direction. And um, I can't see it, you know, shutting down anytime soon, but um but it also takes people going out and, and supporting live performance and, and be willing to, you know, be astonished by what's happening live instead of just sort of watching recorded things, which it's also easy to do. But, um, you know, I think as long as people continue to enjoy the live performance, I think it'll it'll sort of continue morphing, maybe in the same way that Cirque du Soleil is sort of a morph of the traditional circus. So this is just, it's endlessly fascinating. I feel like, you know, what the experiences that you had could and do fill a book. But what makes The Electric Woman so amazing is that it's not just about the sideshow. Um, there's a second braid that is about um, your mother and your relationship to your mother and her journey through multiple strokes um, to become um, independent and to travel to Italy, which was always a dream for her. And so um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about her and about your relationship to her. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I had a really difficult relationship with her um, as I was growing up. We didn't get along, excuse me, very well. And, um, and I didn't really trust her. And and we had really different uh, personalities. I was really kind of shy and quiet and fearful. Um, And she was this really bold, kind of loud, um, vivacious woman. She was a painter for ish. That's what her work was. And she, um, kind of had lived a a pretty vibrant life when she was younger. She, um, was a performed as a stunt surfer when she was living in Hawaii, which is like where she would be on the shoulders of surfers, like performing acrobatics up there. And she worked as a, 
a deep sea fisherman in Oregon and, and she moved around a lot and just kind of had this wild personality. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, when I was 26, she had, um, a massive stroke and then a series of, of some other strokes after that, that took away her ability to walk or talk. Um, and, and for the next couple of years or next year or two, she, um, just kind of went through uh, emergency after emergency. She had t- uh, just so many brain surgeries and um, started having seizures and and really was in the hospital for a year uh, and finally got medically stable. But um, again, couldn't walk or talk or, or care for herself in any way. She her her brain was really badly damaged, um, and so it was really uh, it was really heartbreaking. Um, not just you know, not just to kind of see her, this very uh, vibrant woman, you know, in such a different state, but also because um, I think, you know, as happens to most of us, we always believe that, um, that whatever kind of negative relationships we have at some point in the, in the future, they'll, they'll be better. Um, and it was really hard to, to go from not having a good relationship to not feeling like there was an opportunity to, fix it or to change it. Um, but she, uh, she kept kind of, um, I hate to use the language of warfare, which is what we always use when we talk about illness, but she, she battled on, she kept fighting. Uh, and, and, um, and so it became my job to, um, try to make peace with, myself and with her, um, in a really different role. And, and for me as a caretaker and, and to sort of tell her, you know, as much as I could sort of what I needed to tell her and, and know that I wasn't going to be able to, um, hear anything back or even really be sure for a really long time that she could understand me, but, but, um, just try nevertheless. So, um, yeah, so she uh, became medically stable enough to not be in the hospital anymore. And then, as you mentioned, um, she and my stepdad had this like lifelong dream of going to Italy, uh, and they had never been able to do it. And so um, they kind of decided, like, screw it, um, we're we're just going to go. It's it's unlikely that we'll survive it. Uh, it's unlikely that we'll come back. Um, she didn't have a a bone flap in her head at this point, like her skull basically was removed on half of her head because the swelling never went down in her brain. So she couldn't get on an airplane. Um, so they just, they bought two tickets on a ship to take them to Italy and, um, yeah, planned this trip that was totally, totally horrifying, um, to my family and, and to my brother and I in particular, cause we thought for sure that, that we would never see them again. Um, and, uh, their argument or my stepdad's argument who was articulating this to us was kind of like, like, so what, you know, so we go live the rest of her life or our lives in this really bold and brilliant and dangerous way. Like, so what, why is it any worse than, you know, staying safe and kind of dying here at home? And, um, ultimately there, I didn't, you know, we didn't really have a good argument against that. So, uh, as they were deciding to, to do this trip, um, that's when I first got invited to join the sideshow. And so it sort of felt like, um, I don't know, a way of doing something also reckless and dangerous that would kind of honor her and would probably be a thing that she would have done and probably not a thing that I would have done in an earlier version of myself, but but um, a way of trying to maybe be a little bit more like her. In what ways do your mother's experiences as they're depicted in The Electric Woman um, mirror your own 
as a performer in the sideshow? Um, I mean, I think that she, I mean, certainly pre prior to her having her strokes, um, you know, she, she kind of performed, she was, she was a very performative person. And so she, she would kind of live her life in a way that I think, um, seemed to kind of be as if she was on a stage, but then, um, I mean, in a much more direct way, like, uh, I mean, one of the first things I guess that started striking me as I was writing this book was that, um, she, you know, in the first year or so, especially after she had these strokes and she was just having constant, um, brain surgeries and was just hooked up to, you know, just machines everywhere. She seemed, you know, in some ways, just like a person who was, you know, kept alive by electricity and who was, um, I mean, in all appearances, very monstrous, like she looked terrifying. Uh, and I was kind of horrified to think about that, like to think about, um, kind of some of those, you know, early parallels between what a freak show is and and what like this person who I loved more than anyone else in my life, like what her life was like at that moment. Um, and then I think as I was writing more and thinking more and, 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 um, certainly spending more time in the sideshow, um, it, it started to feel a lot bigger than that. And, and that the parallels seem to be like, um, like what happens when you become the person who chooses to do the thing that is going to be painful and like, what happens when you choose to eat fire instead of not eating fire? What happens when you choose to go to Italy, even though the very reasonable thing would be to stay home and be safe? And, um, you know, I think in that way, she became, you know, not only inspirational and, and, but also like sort of terrifying. And, and, um, I think kind of ultimately like an amazing parallel for this idea of, um, of, of kind of, living, uh, a little bit recklessly, I guess, an argument for being reckless, um, which is, you know, not always the right choice, but, uh, in these cases it it really was. And I mean, she did end up dying, uh, later and, and, um, I think in all ways, you know, got to sort of go do this thing that, that she never would have been able to do and, and see Italy. And they had a really difficult journey, but, um, I think, I don't know, ultimately, like, the more brightness and amazement that kind of filled her life and and filled my life at that point, like, I think both of us were better off for it. So it sounds like um, the experience that you had in the sideshow may have actually drawn you and your mother closer together. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I wasn't ever sure, I think, that she really understood what I was going to go do or anything. But um, I think when I would feel exhausted or feel overwhelmed, um, thinking about her and, and what it means to withstand pain, um, and withstand exhaustion and, and just kind of go forward, uh, thinking about her made me feel more connected and kind of maybe more reverential, um, than I, than I had ever felt before for sure. So with this experience behind you, um, is there anything that you look back and and really miss about performing in a sideshow? And do you ever think about going back? There is a lot I miss, actually. Yeah. Um, 
there were these, I think the moments that I missed the most were, uh, there were often these like young kids that would kind of be in the front rows of the audience. And, um, even, even not young kids, even adults sometimes when you would be doing something amazing and you would, you would look out and you would see their faces and they would just, they would have like wide eyes or dropped, uh, open mouths, basically their jaws would be dropped. Um, and, and they would be seeing something that filled them with awe and wonder. I think that that moment is, um, it's unparalleled and it's something that I absolutely miss just the, the ability to, to, you know, channel wonder for someone else, um, was, was something that I'll, I'll always miss. I think I'll always, I'll always think of that and, and, and want it. Um, I don't think I will go back. I, I'm so grateful uh, for the season that I had there. I'm so, so glad that I did it and that I made it to the end of the season, barely. Um, and I'm really glad that there are other performers who keep the tradition going and and continue to perform. But um, I think I did. I think I did my time in the sideshow. I think I, I think I got... Um, I got out of it what I more than I ever could have hoped and and I'm really grateful for it and um and I'm happy to not have to I'm happy to have all of my eyelashes intact I guess for now we'll say that because <laughs> fire eating does a number to your facial hair <laughs> I can imagine yeah. um so I just have one last question for you um and that is so what what is it that you're hoping will resonate most with readers of the electric woman yeah, um, I think a couple of things. Uh, one is um, that I used to have this idea that there were just like bold people and shy people in the world. And I thought that I was just a shy person and and kind of resigned myself to that. And, and I hated it. I really, really didn't like myself very much um, at all as a younger person. And, um, and it really was a sideshow, I think, where I started to have this clue that um, that you don't really stop being a shy person, or you don't stop being who you are in some way. As as crazy as that sounds, like so obvious, but I didn't I didn't really put that together for a long time. I think um, it, who you are doesn't change. You are still fearful. Like I would I would go you know meet these snakes, and I was still fearful, and I still felt shy when I met all these performers. But um, but I but I just did the thing anyway. So um, you know, finding something that feels scary or that hurts a little bit, like eating fire, it kind of hurts. But you just you just do it to eat fire. You have to feel a little pain, and that's just part of it. Um, same with swallowing swords, and and that felt like also true of what was happening um, emotionally with my mom. I mean, to to love a critically and chronically ill person is a painful experience. There's just there's no way around that. It is painful, um, but there is also no choice but to keep loving that person and keep showing up and and sort of not run away from it. So I think that was a big, a big piece for me and something that I hope, um, resonates. And just the, the last thing I'll say is, um, the sideshow had been something that I was sort of interested in and, and liked and read about, but, but, you know, didn't kind of go further than that for years and years and years. And, and, and then I did, and, and the, the doors that opened the world that, 
changed for me once I followed that interest. I mean, my life is completely different because of, of doing that. And so, um, I would encourage anyone to like these little obsessions that you have along the way in your life, these little things that you love that you read about and that you, you know, go back to, um, at some point, like go further down that rabbit hole, follow your obsessions, you know, past the point where it seems like a reasonable person maybe would, would follow them and just see what happens, see where it leads you. And I think that the, 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 you know, the levels of specificity for the people that you meet who also love those things, it's so fascinating and it's such an incredible connection to make. Um, and it can just open up kind of, uh, levels of, of passion and and weirdness that uh, make the world feel a lot brighter. So I hope that those things um, get taken away. Tessa, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been really nice to talk to you, Zoe. My name is Zoe Bossier, and I'm a host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.